Welcome to Special Relationship, a brand new podcast from The Economist and Mike. I'm John Prideaux from The Economist. And I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. Every two weeks, we're going to be joining forces to bring you our take on what has to rate as one of the most fascinating, not to say bizarre, and occasionally alarming presidential elections in recent memory. This is a decision that affects not just the U.S., but the entire world. We'll be giving you a fresh look from both sides of the pond at the factors in play as America picks a new leader. The thing we're going to be talking about today is terrorism and national security and and the role of fear in this election. I mean, this has been the election that has proved all pundits wrong, right? It's occasionally seemed to be about economics. It's occasionally seemed to be about race and culture. But one of the big unknowns, I suppose, is what effect um, a terrorist act could have on this election. We've already had the candidates talking a little bit about this after San Bernardino, after the attacks in Paris. But we're going to dive into this and talk with your colleague, Luke, Mike, and one of my colleagues, Sophie Petter in Paris, um, about fear and national security in the campaign. That has been a huge issue uh, on both sides of the primary, actually. The Democrats and the Republicans are talking a lot about keeping the country safe. Earlier this month, I went out to a big Trump rally on Long Island. It was his first uh, New York event of the cycle, and the national security rhetoric got pretty heated. But the audience loved it. We have to be vigilant. We have to be smart. We have to know that there's all sorts of traps out there. We don't want more World Trade Centers. We don't want planes flying into the Pentagon. So the kinds of things these people were saying ahead of Donald Trump's rally are the sorts of things that you really hear from a lot of voters when you're traveling around the country covering this campaign. We're all not secure. It's just something that they want to tell you to make you feel good. They say, yeah, go to the, go to the beach, do this, do that. You're not secure. You know I mean, it's a, it's a risk you all take, you know what I mean? You have people at these events who are chanting about wanting to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. You have a lot of people who support the idea of banning Muslims completely from coming into the United States uh, as, a, as a matter of national security. So I do agree with Mr. Trump on putting a temporary ban on Muslims. I have Muslim friends. They agree with him on that. And it could be 1%, it could be 5%. I don't want to take that chance for my family and my friends having that small 1%, uh, whether it's Syrian refugees or whether it's Muslims coming into this country to attack us and have a homeland attack like 9-11, unfortunately. You have people who think that immigrants are taking their jobs. And these people, a lot of them are working class white people, say that Donald Trump is their choice because they see him as a kind of a no-nonsense guy who says what they're thinking and has real ideas about how to solve it. We are going to have a strong border. We are going to build the wall. It will be a real wall. A real wall. I think one of the things that's going on here is you take something people are worried about anyway, right? There's a lot of concern about America, particularly uh, on the Republican side, about illegal immigration. It's cultural and it's economic. And then you mix that in with fear of terrorism, which becomes, you know, a threat to your personal safety. And it's an incredibly potent mix. And I think no matter, you know, it's one of the people you talk to alluded to, no matter how much you talk to people about, you know, the risk of driving in your car, you know, that being far more dangerous than, you know, taking the subway in New York, that the risk of terrorism is still incredibly low, you know, anywhere across the West. Um, It's just such a sort of elemental kind of vital fear that all of that sort of rational stuff goes out the window, right? I think that's really true. I think that people feel these fears 
deep in the pit of their stomachs. And sometimes what's actually going on doesn't match up with those feelings and those fears. For example, if you look at the research You have studies that show that immigrant labor doesn't necessarily cost Americans their jobs. And in fact, it might actually improve their their wages and their working conditions. Or if you have uh, people like Donald Trump stirring up fear about uh, Mexicans being, quote unquote, rapists or drug dealers, that doesn't necessarily match up either with research that shows that immigrants don't commit crimes at the same rate as American citizens. So you definitely have people who are experiencing a lot of fear, and Trump is playing into that, but the reality may be something completely different. Our country has to start getting tough. We have to be vigilant. Here to talk with us about all these issues is Luke Brinker. He's our politics editor here at Mike. So Luke, is Donald Trump, do you think, tapping into fear and xenophobia that already exists, or is he stirring up something entirely new? I think it's really a little bit of both. I think that what you've seen with uh, Trump is that he has played to suspicions about Muslims, about uh, minority groups that have existed for a long time. Without that pre-existing suspicion, you wouldn't have seen his campaign take off quite the way that it has. The other thing that he has done, though, is to talk about terrorism, to talk about extremism, to talk about groups like Muslims in a way that we haven't seen from uh, a mainstream politician before, Uh, so much so that Proposals that you've seen from other Republican candidates that normally might have raised some alarm bells don't really do that anymore simply because Trump has redefined uh, the parameters of the debate. So, for instance, you saw a few months ago when he came out with the proposal to ban uh, foreign Muslims from entering the United States, that consumed days worth of news coverage. Whereas, you know, Marco Rubio's statement that perhaps we should shut down coffee houses or bookstores were radical. Uh, ideas are being disseminated, didn't really receive that much attention, something that pre-Trump very well well may have uh, consumed uh, more than an entire news cycle. So what you've seen with Trump is that he has both tapped into existing sentiments and really changed the entire terms of the debate. Well, I'm thinking that maybe what he's done, in fact, is make it more acceptable to talk about these things openly. Maybe this is something where it's not Uh, it's not that he's saying something particularly new or something that people didn't think in the backs of their minds or feel in the pits of their stomachs before, but maybe now all of a sudden it's okay to say, you know, during a casual conversation, you know what, I think it's a good idea to not let Muslims into the United States, or I really do think the Mexicans are taking our jobs. Uh, What what do you think about about that that sort of approach to it? I think there's a lot of merit to that. I think uh, what that's done, too, is really force other uh, members of the political class to respond to this sort of upsurge in populist sentiment that uh, Trump has stoked. So you saw, for instance, uh, when he announced his campaign, you know, with this broadside against rapists and other criminals pouring across the border, as he alleged, uh, he really took a lot of heat for several weeks. But then what you saw both before and certainly after Trump really dominated the race was all of his rivals sort of competing to outflank one another uh, from the right on immigration. Uh, What his rivals have clearly seen is that there is a massive audience for what Trump is selling. And rather than sort of trying to channel that sentiment into, you know, some sort of other approach, what they've really done is uh, try to adapt themselves to it. And uh, I think that clearly what we're seeing now is that uh, 
whether Trump ends up winning the nomination or not, his ideas have certainly captured a huge segment of the party. One of the things that seems strange about Trump on national security and fears of terrorism is that you would have thought this would not be a strong suit for him. Mm -hmm. He's got zero experience in foreign affairs. He really knows very little about what's going on, you know, in the Islamic world. And yet, his persona throughout the whole primary, if you look back to when there were more candidates in the race, was to be the kind of strong man. He used to delight in making his Republican rivals kind of look and feel small on stage. So actually, if what a lot of voters are looking for actually is not real action or promises to do this and that, but a sense of reassurance, that strong man play is, is quite useful, isn't it? Could be. Um, I would say that, you know, the moment that I personally realized that the Trump phenomenon was for real and that this is someone who was actually likely to be the nominee was when after the uh, Paris and San Bernardino attacks late last year, his poll numbers actually went up. The conventional wisdom was that suddenly Republican voters would get serious, look for somebody with more experience in foreign policy and national security and sort of uh, turn themselves off to everything that uh, Trump was selling. In fact, you know, they did turn to him as someone who would be strong on terrorism, who would clamp down. And, you know, he's owned that issue like no other Republican has. The problem that he could run into in a general election is that right now polls show that by a pretty substantial margin, Americans trust Hillary Clinton far more than they trust Trump uh, to deal with terrorism, to deal with foreign policy and uh, national security. Uh, obviously, a lot of that has to do with her background as, you know, the former Secretary of State. She's also already sort of pitching herself as a steady hand at the tiller who won't be uh, a hothead, as she argues, and many uh, people feel Trump would be. Um, but at the same time, you do have to wonder, you know, if there's another terror attack in the United States or even uh, in Europe, he could conceivably uh, seize on that as evidence that, as Republicans are fond of calling it, the Obama-Clinton foreign policy has made the world less safe, that it's failed to sort of stem the tide of radicalism and that he uh, alone can solve this threat. So uh, at this point, it looks like the general election might be a little bit tougher for him to make that pitch. But so many things with Trump we couldn't have predicted a few months before they took place. So it's, it's, it's hard to say, to be honest. Luke Brinker, politics editor for Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Now we're going to move to Europe to look at some of how these same issues are playing out there in European politics. We're joined by Sophie Pedder, who's the Economist Paris bureau chief. Sophie, you've written a lot about terrorism, immigration, the way those fears mix together and their effect on politics in France and, and across Europe. Does what you've seen in the American political campaign, does that seem familiar to you? Yes, it does. I mean, I think you're looking at exactly the same issue in a way. It's sort of the combination of uh, identity politics, concerns about immigration being uh, meshing with uh, concerns about national security and, and terrorism. And, you know, the great difficulty is that in the past, some politicians who've argued that there is, there is no connection between the two. Uh, if you look at the Paris terror attacks from last um, November, uh, two of the uh, suicide bombers actually came into Europe 
from Syria using fake passports, but as refugees, posing as refugees. And so, you know, for those who had sort of whipped up fears and said uh, refugees equal terrorism, and they were they were in the past, you know, um, sort of dismissed as being fantasists. Now, unfortunately, you know, there's a little element of truth in that, and it's incredibly difficult, therefore to sort of keep a sense of perspective. And uh, there are politicians all over Europe. I mean, it's the case in France because you have the National Front, um, which has been a, a powerful force for a long time, but, uh, but in other countries as well, which are really exploiting those fears. And France, ever since the Bataclan attack, I think, has been under a state of emergency. What's it like living under a state of emergency in France? Well, it's, it is a strange thing to realise that since November, France has this state of emergency, which gives police powers uh, to uh, make house arrest without judicial warrant, to uh, raid premises, for example, to close down mosques uh, if they're considered radical. I think that, you know, what probably most people on a sort of daily basis feel is that uh, visible presence of the of the army. You know, it's not, um, this isn't the military police that's on the streets, it's the army. So, you know, full camouflage and machine guns, and you see them at the airports and on the underground, you see them uh, outside schools, outside mosques, outside um, Jewish temples. It's, even even if you go into a shopping centre, I mean, you still have your, you have your bag searched and the army is patrolling. I mean, this is, this is really quite strange for Europe to be uh, living in this sort of situation. And it's very difficult for that not to infect, um, you know, public opinion. You, people are desperate, I think, to keep, get back to normal and to go out to cafes and be sitting on the pavement, you know, in the French way. But at the same time, there is an edginess. Um, and it's an edginess that's quite difficult for politicians to manage, I think. You know, the management of fear, uh, getting the right balance between uh, making people aware of a risk, which which is real, and at the same time, you know, in, sort of spreading a sense of paranoia is, is very difficult. Sophie, can you talk a little bit about whether people see this sort of heightened military or police presence on the street as something comforting that their leaders are doing to protect them, or whether they feel it's more repressive or restricting in some way? It's a really interesting question, and I think on the whole, people find it more reassuring than than um, worrisome. If you look at polls, there's a huge support for the state of emergency in France. It's not something that there's that's contested, not and there's a consensus, bipartisan consensus about uh, keeping it in place. Uh, the most interesting thing, in a way, is that France is being run by a socialist president and a socialist government. So you might have expected them to be, you know, quite uh, cautious about implementing a hard headed sort of security policy, but not at all. They have, in a way, it reflects a sort of shift of gravity, I think, in, in European politics towards a more, a, more, a more tolerance of sort of security measures that in the past, I think, would have been seen as either intrusive or, or, or basically an infringement of civil liberties. I think that that argument has changed. And there is a sense now that, you know, Europe has got to wake up and realise that these things are real, that the, the threat is real. Um, and therefore that uh, the presence of the military and the, and the constraints that, you know, greater checking on bags, on transport, on x-rays, all of that which goes on on a daily basis in France is just sort of the way, it's, it's the new normal. If you look at this from an even bigger picture standpoint, people like Donald Trump are espousing uh, sort of a worldview that is really fundamentally isolationist. He's talked about pulling out of NATO. He's talking about uh, limiting U.S. involvement abroad in a lot of different ways. I'm just wondering if you are seeing or hearing the same kind of isolationist attitudes in Europe. 
Well, I mean, the interesting case, I think, for France, I, I, I can't sort of speak for Donald Trump, but I mean, if you look at the French... Uh, foreign policy over in recent years, the French have actually been the opposite of isolationist. They've been very active, in particular in uh, bits of Africa, where there's the real problem with uh, jihadist um, uh, sort of incursions. And the French led an operation, for example, in Mali, which is a country in the Sahel in Africa, where there was a sort of attempt to take over the government by the by jihadists. And it was again, it was a socialist government in France that sent soldiers out there and pushed it back. So. France has actually been quite active, quite internationalist, quite uh, proactive in trying to take a lead in combating jihadism abroad. But in a way, that's made it more of a target. Um, and it's sort of it's a difficult one for, for the French to, to accept that they have become more of a they're a bit more vulnerable to attack in part because of their of their support and their activity uh, in combating jihadism abroad. So I think, you know, in the French case, um, it hasn't been a retreat. It hasn't been a question of, of, of trying to withdraw from, from world affairs. It's been really almost the opposite. During the course of the campaign, Donald Trump has had a few things to say about this situation in Europe. And he has said specifically uh, that some of the capitals in Europe, in uh, France and Belgium, are examples of where security isn't working, where uh, jihadism or radicalism hasn't really been properly addressed. So he's making those kinds of statements about Europe. So obviously that's one kind of extreme view of Europe and what's going on there. If you flip it around, though, uh, how do people in Europe view travel to the United States? Do they look at coming here as sort of a dangerous proposition? And do they view it as more dangerous than traveling domestically in Europe? I don't think it's had an effect on uh, French perceptions of travelling in the US. I mean, I think the French and Europeans generally find American gun laws completely incomprehensible. Um, and uh, when there is a shoot, that a sort of shooting that takes place occasionally on campuses or in schools, it um, gets a huge amount of coverage uh, on TV and, and in the papers in, in Europe. But I don't think that has an effect on travelling per se. And the, the opposite way around, though, I think, you know, one has to... It goes back to something that John uh, Prido said earlier about how, you know, the real rational uh, perception of risk is, is very different from, from that that you might sort of feel. It, it, it is still much more dangerous to drive down the motorway than it is to visit Paris. I mean, <laughs> people go about their daily lives and I know tourism has gone down. In particular, they're very worried in France about um, a drop in tourists from Japan, which has been uh, quite dramatic. But but I think, you know, from other European countries, the closer you are to France, the more you realise that actually, you know, it, it, it's you, you can go on with your lives and France is still a relatively safe place to travel to. And Sophie, you've even written about there's a certain amount of defiance in France, right? You wrote about people using the hashtag Je suis en terrasse, which basically means I'm eating outside in a pavement cafe as a way to kind of stick two fingers up to um, to ISIS. <laughs> I think there is. You know, I think the French feel that very much the the it was their way of life that was targeted last November in those terrorist attacks. It was, you know, going out. It was sitting on a pavement cafe. It was having a good time after work with friends. That was what was being um, targeted and 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 the French punished in a way for that, in in this sort of sick way that it was. But uh, there is a, a sort of defiant sense. It's a defiant sense though that's always tinged with a little bit of apprehension. I have to say, I think that you know things don't get to back to normal after terrorist attacks 
um, even within six months. And we saw that in London in 2005 or in Madrid in 2004. It was it takes it takes a while for people to feel uh, that things have returned to normal. And Brussels has the Brussels attacks recently have have made are going to slow that down. But you know the French are still defiant, and they are not just staying at home and uh, and boycotting their bars. Far from it. All right. Well, Sophie, thank you very much. That's it for now. Join us in two weeks for another episode of Special Relationship. You can find us on Mike.com and Economist.com or on iTunes or any other podcast app. From The Economist, I'm John Prado. And from Mike, I'm Celeste Katz. Thanks for listening. Okay.